Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, Doug Ford has begun the process of selecting his new inner circle of cabinet ministers as his government prepares to potentially recall the legislature to pass the provincial budget. Who's in? Who's out? Well, talk about that. Heather Schofield, Ottawa Bureau Chief for the Toronto Star, will join us to discuss her laced op ed piece, Justin Trudeau's Progressive Values Are Great, but they're not going to help guarantee economic prosperity on their own. And the PGA has reacted to the number of golfers that are leaving the PGA to go for more money someplace else. It's all coming up in the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Doug Ford government, of course, is going to be reassembling, and he's got to pick a cabinet. As he, uh, and by the way, he says he's going to hit the ground running on all of this stuff, right, uh, because he wants to get back. And they say have a sitting in June which might be a surprise to some of the MPPs who are anticipating they might have the summer off. Uh, so how do you go about doing something like that? Who do you pick? Uh, what are the criteria for cabinet membership uh, in this government or any government? Uh, well, to dissect all of this stuff, we're so pleased to welcome back to the program uh, Muhammad Ali, who is a senior consultant for Crestview Strategies. Uh, Muhammad, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for the time today. Thanks for having me. Let's, uh, let's start off with uh, the Ford uh, situation here. Uh, first and foremost, uh, the suggestion uh, yesterday, of course, that they're probably going to go back to work uh, in the next week or two to uh, have a summer session. I would imagine that's going to be a short session, but what, what would the purpose of that be? Is there any pending legislation, anything that's so important that it can't wait until fall? Yeah, the, the, the piece of legislation they're talking about uh, quickly passing is the budget bill. So just okay. before the election, they tabled a, a budget, which they ultimately ran as a platform. So they're going to want to come back quickly, pass the budget, uh, and then depart for the summer, and then come back uh, with you know kind of a new approach uh, and focus for the rest of the next four years coming in the fall. And, and also to avoid sort of um, squeezing in with the fall kind of statement that comes out in like November, which tends to be like a bit of a mini budget. Um, so you kind of want to have a little bit of separation for them, just you know, you know, just for messaging and also just like commitments and such. So that's the real intention is they want to get the budget bill passed quickly in the, uh, the summer. So when they're going through the process of, of selecting a cabinet, establishing this, uh, this is, of course, the guys that just got reelected. He's got a list already, people that served in different portfolios. Uh, does he go down that list and simply say, yeah, that, that one's okay, that one's okay, and now we're going to make a change here? I mean, there are, well, for instance, Christine Elliott's not there anymore, so uh, health minister, which is a very important portfolio, it's got to be job one, I would think, at this stage, wouldn't it be? Yeah, so cabinet making is always a very interesting sort of process for anyone. Um, you know, when they're when they're looking at it, you know, the, the premier and and his uh, core team are going to look at okay, who are core like very experienced, good, can handle tough files that also deserve maybe a promotion a bit. As you mentioned, Kristen Elliott has gone, so you're the minister of health, which is a very senior, important role. She's also deputy premier, so who fills that void? So you think about like a, a Caroline Mulroney might be one. Um, Peter Bethendalvi could be another, like there are these senior cabinet ministers that could be loaded into that because they, they had that pedigree. It's also a nice role to kind of counterbalance against the premier because of the, you know, that's what the kind of relationship was between Christianelli and Doug Ford. Um, so it was a bit of a healthy tension. But when you're looking at the rest of cabinet, uh, you got to, you know, you're going to look at who are, who are the people that, you know, perform well or, or needed a, or, or done well and they need to be promoted. But you also want to keep largely some of them intact because, now that you're in your second mandate, you want to continue building. You don't want to restart. So expect about like 80% of cabinet to be largely the same faces. Maybe, you know, there's going to be some changes of what portfolios they'll be in, but largely the same. But then the other thing is you want to reward some of the new people that came in. 
uh, particularly in writings where the pieces traditionally have not um, succeeded. And so think of Timmins, uh, Windsor, Hamilton and such. You know, they had clean sweeps throughout the 905. So they don't want to, uh, you know, incorporate some of these tough writing that they want to promote the candidates so they can, you know, strengthen their, their base uh, for the long haul. And then also, you know, you want to build up some of the diversity uh, and equity, you know, uh, composition of the of cabinet. So you, know, you have two uh, black women who are elected as MPPs, you have more uh, women, you have more other people of color. So you want to kind of incorporate that. So those are all kind of factors that are going to play into, into cabinet making. Well, it, when that comes up to play, and, and as you say, some rewarding some areas that have, you know, elected uh, conservative MPPs, does seniority count there at all? Because uh, I tell you what, the speculation over the last couple of days, well, since the election, uh, was here in Hamilton. Of course, you've got Donna Skelly, who's a veteran MPP, uh, was in the last uh, Ford government, uh, and Neil Lumsden, who won in, uh, in Hamilton, East Stony Creek, uh, as a star candidate. And uh, the first time in years, of course, that they've held that. Uh, does that necessarily mean that the Hamilton area will get a cabinet position? And if so, how do you choose between the two? And that's a great question. So it, it comes down to like, you know, you start at one spot. So like you, you would start, okay, what are the ones that are the tough ones that we need to fill right away that, uh, you know, are not necessary. So you're gonna look at health. Health is sort of the, the big, the big uh, missing block there. Uh, and then as well as, you know, Rod Phillips not, didn't run. So there was that kind of dual roles that some ministers were playing. So you look at that and it kind of creates a domino effect. Then we come down to, you know, we need to find some representation potentially for Hamilton or the Hamilton area. You know, Donna Skelly is there. Are they looking, you know, if, depending on how the cabinet sort of been, you know, falling into place, they would say, okay, no, we can, we can take advantage of uh, a rookie MVP coming in uh, because it's a tough, you know, tough riding that we want. So Hamilton East, Sony Creek, that, that would become one. Uh, or if you have maybe a few too many rookies that are now being incorporated because you're trying to, you know, cover other bases, Donna might be more attractive because she's kind of been there. She understands the local issues and, and how kind of, you know, Queens Park works and such. So you're not really having to walk them through like, hey, here's a bathroom, here's this, here's that, whatever, you know, that kind of step. So um, mm -hmm. it really will come down to how the rest of cabinet structures in and then they can make some of these like more closer call distinctions of like, um, you know, person A or person B. Is gender going to be a factor here and just on that basis? I mean, you know, when Justin Trudeau got elected in 2015, he, he consciously made sure that half the cabinet were female. Uh, is, is Doug Ford like-minded or is, is that a consideration at all? It's not going to be Justin Trudeau level, uh, to be perfectly honest. I, I would be surprised if he, he sort of committed to a 50-50%. Sort of, he might accidentally reach it, but I highly, highly doubt that. Uh, but they will want to increase... Uh, representation amongst you know women but also uh you have more women of color also that are elected in the pc banner so you want to incorporate a few of them because they've the pc sort of learned their strategy was sort of like how do we broaden the tent a little bit more let's just pull in some of these other voters that traditionally go with pc so this is how you kind of build into the communities and a, a lot more and you know they did that in the last go around just before the election when they had certain cabinet ministers from certain uh ethnic minority communities so you know, you had uh, Minister Rashid and you had Minister Sarkaria, who are both from Sikh and Muslim communities, uh, to help kind of build more relationships uh, within those communities, because you don't need the support uh, at come election time. Do, but there's one key portfolio, of course, with health, and I understand that. It's a huge, huge uh, portfolio. A lot of money goes into that portfolio, so he's going to have to choose carefully there. But you mentioned finance. Uh, Bethlen Falvey, of course, is the finance minister in the last government. Uh, premiers and prime ministers tend to want to 
have some consistency in that portfolio. I know when Stephen Harper was prime minister for what, almost 10 years, uh, Jim Flaherty was his guy. I mean, there were a lot of other cabinet moves back and forth. And right up until, I guess, uh, just a couple of months before Flaherty died, uh, he was he was the finance minister. Uh, does Ford stick with Bethlehem Falvey, or is he starting to look for somebody else who might be able to fill that role? You know, I think uh, it's a good chance that he sticks around in that role. Um, you know, there was the, the challenges early on, the mandate with the you know, two of the first two, his first two ministers uh, kind of had their own controversy and mistakes, missteps. They had to change him out. So, uh, you know, I, I expect some sort of continuity there. Uh, given also there's a budget and then there's going to be a quick turnaround football economic statement um, this fall in November. I, I suspect that he is probably likely to stay in the finance portfolio, given, as you said, like you want stability there, you want consistency there, because it's not easy. It's probably one of the most challenging portfolios to manage because the one that you're like, where do we spend the money? How do we spend the money? And uh, I also need to tell people that you can't spend this money. So it's also like, you're not only just like, you know, looking at the expenses, but you're also like negotiating constantly with every cabinet minister and with the premier of like, what can we and cannot spend money on? Um, and how do we kind of remain uh, fiscally disciplined? Uh, so, you know, we have a good balance sheet going forward. Promotions within cabinet and these portfolios, of course, have different levels of, of significance. Uh, finance and health, the two big portfolios, of course, and we already mentioned that that health portfolio is going to be a key element. Uh, but education was a very controversial portfolio. Stephen Lecce uh, took a bullet for the, prime, the premier on an awful lot of occasions here. Uh, does he get rewarded? Uh, I, I'm not so sure he wants to stay in that portfolio, but do you consider him for something like health? Yeah, you know, he definitely is one to watch in terms of uh, where where does where does he land? Uh, I think definitely he's he's taking quite a bit of punches. There's a big battle coming up with you know in some negotiations at the with the school boards and such uh, and the unions. So you know, is he the right person for those negotiations? Do they put someone new to kind of refresh sort of the conversation, refresh the relationship? Um, given how, how how toxic it got throughout the pandemic, particularly, but even before the pandemic, it wasn't in uh, great shape. So uh, they may not promote him. They may also do like a lateral. So these are the kind of considerations where okay, there's certain ones we want to promote because they're clear, they're you know they're key. They you know don't have any you know controversial scandals or or, or high performers uh, and have succeeded. Uh, but there's others when you can kind of do a lateral move on and say, look, like maybe you just need to change the scenery, but let's not like put more on your plate because we need to kind of see if you can handle something more, more, uh, more challenging and more extensive, more, you know, uh, more, you know, overall a tougher file because as you get uh -huh. more and more senior, they're just more to deal with, more stakeholders, more things on the line. It's more politically challenging, right? Education is a challenging file, so. If he, you know, he struggled, you know, he struggled there for, for sure. So they may want to kind of look at a lateral move to say, hey, like, can you prepare your image a little bit, but also like see if you can succeed um, in a new portfolio of similar, um, similar size. I'm trying to go down the list of the, the cabinet from uh, the last uh, showing here, of course, just before the election, and you figure, okay, who deserves uh, a promotion? You know, the, the name that jumped out at me was Monty McNaughton. Uh, Labor's not a huge portfolio, but, I mean, there was a lot of movement in that, and, and he's given credit, I think, for an awful lot of the uh, the movement of, of a lot of organized labor unions uh, to support the, you know, the, for instance, the auto workers, uh, Leuna, people like that. He's established some pretty strong relationships. Do you keep a guy like that there to maintain those relationships, or do you say to the, to a guy like McNaughton, you, you've deserved a better portfolio? Now, let's let's bump you up a little bit. Yeah, that one is the one I'm I'm, I'm closely watching to see because uh, there was Minister McNaughton, I think, was probably one of the most effective cabinet ministers in this government. Uh, just 
just delivered very well, overall good policies, good stakeholder management. You know, he understood the politics, it's close to the premier. Uh, so I'm very much a trusted advisor uh, and I expect him to get promoted. You know, I know it, it's also considerations for ministers like himself who actually will have a little bit more say in terms of, I, you know, I really like this portfolio, but I want to build more into it. So they may start, and this is where like cabinet making becomes interesting. We're like, you might start splitting up certain departments because you're like, you know what, this is a really big department. So let's, let's pull this part out and give it to this person because there's maybe a little bit more um, consistency in terms of the policies that we're working on and, and, uh, and, and this is the right person to deliver. And they also want to keep the broader portfolio they already have. So labor might become something of a much bigger one where he adds other pieces into it. Um, or he ultimately gets promoted into a, you know, a senior captain role. So think of like infrastructure. Infrastructure is going to be a big thing over the next four years for this government. That's going to be dealing with a lot of the same people that Mr. McNaughton was able to pull into the, the PC camp. You know, we talk about the highway, we talk about transit, we talk about hospitals and such. Infrastructure is one of those kind of files that um, requires a lot of kind of uh, navigating personalities, navigating politics and such. So and doling out some, you know, that was a big money. So I think like, that might be a portfolio that he might really excel in and might be pushed into. Of course, the other end of that spectrum, uh, and it's happened from time to time, where there's a cabinet shuffle, or in this case, a, a new cabinet to be sworn in, where somebody gets in a position where they find themselves on the outside looking in. They're not in cabinet anymore, uh, usually because of poor performance, maybe a bad relationship with the boss, whether it's a prime minister or premier. Uh, anybody come to mind like that, or is, is it everybody on pretty firm ground there? You know, that's an excellent question. I think uh, it, there's two ways I would, I would answer that question. One is, uh, to my earlier comment about, you know, you also want to reward people who came into some really tough writings in one of the PCs. And, and it also comes down like, does this does the premier want to expand cabinet? I don't think he's going to really want to expand it too much. He may add like a couple of, of new ministers to the cabinet to kind of grow it a little bit, but unlikely to get really big. Uh, so it makes it really hard to kind of who do you reward? Now, the people who are in very safe seats and maybe have been around for a very long time that aren't very close to the premier are, are on the outside looking in. Uh, so, you know, you can think of some of the ministers that just really didn't click, didn't really do a good job. So, uh, you know, we might get uh, the Ottawa area, for example, is one. At least in the cloud and Mr. Fullerton both had very tough goes in their cabinet portfolios. Uh, obviously, are, are, you know, one with, you know, clear, clear, clear wins in their writings. But you need someone who's from an Ottawa area. So, you know, do one, you know, I suspect at least one of them probably stays in cabinet. But do both, that'd be a question that, that'd be an interesting kind of dynamic that exists. You know, you look at some of the other rural areas um, uh, that have been traditionally PC, I, I can't see them uh, getting in uh, again in the cabinet because, again, like they're going to need to have some tough conversations, some hurt feelings. But when they take someone out of cabinet, it doesn't mean that they're going to be thrown right to the very backs of backbencher. They may say, Look, you know what, I'm going to make you the chair of this uh, important committee or I'm going to make you a prominent secretary that's going to have this, you know, this kind of role, or ultimately if there's someone who doesn't want to, you know, think sticking around for the long term, you know, you think about, you know, these were kind of nepotism to get into the, into, uh, into the challenge of like, you know, do I promote this person as a consul general for us or do I, you know, yeah, that's when some of those other things can come to factor. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, there's a nephew involved there, too. But, but that'll be an interesting choice, if in fact it is a choice. Uh, we'll be watching. Always great to get your perspective on this, Mohammed. Thanks so much for the time today. Thanks for having me. Take care. Mohammed Ali, of course, from Crestview Strategies, uh, speculating on the new Ontario cabinet.
You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Prime Minister's in uh, California today meeting with other uh, representatives uh, of the nations right across North and South America, uh, talking about a number of things. And you know the economy is going to come up in that discussion. Uh, he's meeting with President Biden today to talk about issues, and there have been some informal meetings with some of the other folks. Uh, but the question everybody's asking here, and I guess in just about all those other countries, is, okay, what's your plan? And we know right now that uh, that inflation uh, is is the major problem. The cost of living is a major problem with just about every one of these nations. And uh, we're not looking for platitudes here. We're looking for some solutions. Well, uh, Heather Schofield writes about this, Ottawa Bureau Chief for the Toronto Star, uh, about the, the Prime Minister's approach to this and, and what we can expect going forward, because it's not going to get easier for them, and it's certainly not going to get easier for us who are going to be affected by these prices. Uh, so we're pleased to welcome back to the program, Heather Schofield, uh, to talk about the article and to talk about uh, what could be happening and what we could expect and wish for, I guess, uh, from Ottawa in the next couple of days. Heather, great to have you back on the show. Thanks so much for the time today. My pleasure. It's great to be here. Uh, interesting piece, very timely, of course. Uh, Justin Trudeau's progressive values are great, uh, but they won't guarantee economic prosperity on their own. Uh, as you mentioned here, we we are in for a bumpy ride. We're enjoying uh, the, the, what we thought was going to be an economic recovery. And, and I know you've written about this and we've talked about this on the program. Uh, mm-hmm. Economists will tell you things are looking better. You know, the job numbers are great and everything. But if it's not happening to you, and if you're having trouble making ends meet, things are not getting better. Uh, how's the prime minister addressing this? I mean, as I mentioned in our intro here, I don't want platitudes. I want solutions. Has he got them? Yeah. So he is. He's been talking a lot lately, and and this is a, you know true true to about what he's what he says over time too is that you know uh, he he holds up this promise of of progressivism. You know that that by uh, putting forward policies that are all about inclusion and making sure, you know, that, that economic growth uh, carries everybody along and I've got your backs, that that will lead to prosperity down the road. Um, and, you know, he, he puts environment in there too, right? That if we have uh, pro-environment policies, that that leads to to prosperity down the road. But, but you know, there's, you know, there are two sides of the ledger there that for sure, you know, whatever he's going to say on environment and diversity and inclusion, you know, those all sound fine. But the equation between that and prosperity is troubling right now because we're not feeling it. As you said, you know, we are, yes, we have recovered from the pandemic recession, um, but we're not coming back. We're not roaring back as the prime minister initially said we would. We're, we're, we're limping back and the rest of the world is probably more hobbled than we are, which, which really does pose quite a threat for our future. And at the same time, we've got, we've got high inflation and, um, you know, all the talk in the world about dental programs and diversity and inclusion are not, they're, they're cold comfort for people who are going to the grocery store and having to skimp and save and, and you know, take the take take the smaller packages and, and just cut back or, you know, drive less or, you know, try to figure out how the heck they're going to fill their, their gas tank because it's a lot more expensive and it affects all of us. And I've seen some of the clips, uh, well, even now that he's, he's down in, in California with the other leaders. And uh, you're right, he, uh, you know, you see the stuff he's talking about here, and he talks about the prosperity, et cetera, et cetera, and he gets the environmental point. He even talked about reconciliation as part of that. I mean, these are talking points, you know, and, and I get that. Politicians all do that because they want to make sure, okay, in the 22nd clip, I want to cover all those bases so so they keep hearing that, yeah, those are our, our priorities. And I understand that. Uh, but what, that 
we we're asking them right at this point, Heather, aren't we to just be laser focused on what you're going to yeah. do so, so, to to solve what's coming up here? Because you know, the, the, some of the economists here are saying, look, it's going to get worse before it gets better. Yeah, it's true. So there is, I think, a growing realization within the federal cabinet and and Christopher Freeland, the finance minister in particular, that. You know, it's it's not enough to have this longer term vision where where everybody is where everybody gets along. It's that's just not enough because our problems are right now, and they're not going to get they're not getting any better. And so, you know, <laughs> there's been a lot of pressure, I think, from within for for them to be far more precise and 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 focused on the near term on what the heck it is we're going to do to get out of the mess we're in right now. Um, I saw a little bit of movement so just a couple of days ago. Um, after I wrote that column that we're talking about, about uh, with Christopher Freeland listing listing off some of the government policies that actually help mitigate uh, some of the pain of of inflation, you know, just putting out a list on Twitter. But you know, a list on Twitter is not going to cut it <laughs> when, when you're mm. when you're really feeling feeling the pinch, right? So she's and now they they've uh, suddenly planned a big speech for next week where I think she will try to at least make the case. But you know, the cold reality of this is we've at the same time we've got the Bank of Canada and the Federal Reserve. Reserve in the United States and, and central banks around the world ratcheting up interest rates in a big way. They are very serious. They're, they're not, uh, you know, they are not going to back down until they break the back of inflation. And what does that mean? That means, you know, it's not a gentle process. It means they are going to raise rates really suddenly. It's going to cost a lot more to to um, borrow money. It's your mortgages are going to be a lot more. All that wealth that we have wrapped up as a country in the real estate market is going to be thrown off kilter. Um, you know, people trying to get into the market are going to find it even more difficult because they're qualifying for, for for mortgages and then housing values go down. So we're talking about a big churn, a painful churn for a lot of people's own personal finances, and um, a big push, I would say, on the federal liberals to 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 you know offer a lot more than bromides. And, and that's an important part here because I know that as interest rates went up and they get, just last week, of course, they did again. And they say, and the Bank of Canada is pretty over this, aren't they? They're simply saying, okay, I know this is going to hurt, but we're going to do it anyway. Uh, you know, no yeah. mercy. This is like tough love, isn't it? And, you know, oh, yeah, we know that's going to start driving prices up, but you know, that's the price you pay. And uh, so that's, <laughs> they're not going to get any help or any, any love from these guys. So it's going to have to be done at the political level, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I would say from the Bank of Canada's point of view, it's not a matter of them being malicious about it. It's just that's no. how you that's how you bend inflation, right? You deliberately inflict pain on the economy so that it doesn't grow as fast. I mean, I think part of the problem, the thing that we have to keep in mind here is that a lot of the inflationary pressure comes from the supply side of the economy. You know, we're short on stuff. We're short on people. China is locked down in its COVID mess. We've got Russia and Ukraine not uh, trading and supplying the world with grain and, and, and gas and oil. Um, and 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 that's been exacerbated um, by by supply chain issues around the world. So that's all on the supply side. The central bank works on the demand side. What they can do is raise rates and make it harder to, for for people to buy and borrow. So so what they're trying to do here is is to crush demand so that it meets a lower supply. That all hurts, and it's on purpose that they're that they're that you know you can't just let things go because that hurts too. So they've got to bring it under control. So where the federal government comes in, the fiscal policy side is. You know, what can they do to boost supply? What can they do to cushion the blow without exacerbating inflation? Like it would be their tendency, I think, at the the federal liberals is to spend a ton of money and, and, and paper over everything with money. But you can't do that in this situation because that exacerbates the problem. So there's pressure from the liberals and from the, I mean, sorry, from the conservatives and from the NDP to, to be more specific and, and, and to zoom in on what those two parties think the problems are. 
So, you know, we've got the conservatives saying you've got to lower taxes on, on fuel. There's no way the liberals are going to do that. I mean, it's just too, they, they like a high gas price in, in theory over time because they want to, they want to pull back on our gas consumption and they're not, they're not going to touch that. Um, on the other side of the ledger, we've got uh, the NDP really pushing for, for a couple things. They want them to tax highly profit, profitable corporations more, um, which the liberals seem to be resistant to as well. But they also want them to give, uh, to make sure that low income people have got some extra money. So they put some ideas out there. So far, the liberals have resisted, although I don't know if they will keep going down that road. They might, they might in the end just say, okay, yeah, you're right. Like we've got these programs out here for low-income people, but it really hurts. So we'll give them an extra boost by say a GST rebate or, or, or something like that down the road. They haven't got there yet though. Yeah, but the pressure's mounting, isn't it? I mean, uh, yeah, we saw Candace Bergen and, and Jagmeet Singh with, a, as you mentioned, that list of demands basically and saying, look, you got to do something. Uh, and, and to your point, I mean, you know, they're not going to touch gasoline. I totally agree uh, because they're trying to wean us off that. The other element, too, and don't forget, is that, you know, the, the, the tax on that gasoline is based on, on the price of the gas itself at the pump. So they're making money off this. I, you know, this is, you know, when Christy Freeland comes out with their next financial statement, they're going to say, look at what a great job we've done. The deficit's not as big as we thought. Well, that's because we're paying at the pump. That's our money she's talking about. So and no politician wants to admit that, but higher prices like that that are going to be taxed by the federal government is a boon to the government. Uh, they're, they're not going to brag about it, but they certainly take the money. So that, there's that element to it. So yeah, they're, they're not leaving themselves much room to, to do much here. Uh, tax cuts are, are, that's basically a conservative policy anyway. Uh, the liberals have always prided themselves and no, we're going to put money in your pocket right now. And here's a check, one for you and one for you. And they don't have that ability right now either. They're pr pretty limited here. Yeah, I, t I agree that they're limited. Although, you know, if you look at the United States, the United States, the Joe Biden is completely seized with this and they are coming up with with um, some pretty interesting ways and in dealing with inflationary pressure. I mean, their inflation problem is worse than ours. And so clearly they haven't licked, they haven't conquered that problem by any means, but they're throwing, they're throwing a bunch of ideas at it. You know, they are um, using their competition and antitrust laws to crack down on, on profit gougers, like, you know, companies that, uh, that. Uh, are already profitable and they're seeing higher prices out there and they're like, okay, let's, let's take full advantage, right? So the U.S. is using their laws to, to, to crack down on them. There's a little bit of noise about that here in Canada, but it's certainly not being used aggressively like it is in the United States. Um, Joe Biden's also talking about, you know, controlling um, specific prices on, on a couple of things where they do have control, like pharmaceuticals. Um, you know, here in Canada, there is no talk of, of that. And, and the government, the federal government does control some markets, right? They control dairy, they control poultry. Mm -hmm. um, so there, there are, you know, areas where they are already involved in, in, in setting prices. They can, there are, there's an influence over, over drugs as well. So um, that kind of freewheeling, um, you know, open debate about what is it that can we do that it's not really taking place here. Um, and I, I think, though, I think it's, it's going to have to because, you know, inflation's not going away. The numbers may even be worse the next couple of months. Maybe not. Some people will say we've peaked. Regardless, prices are going to remain high and that really hurts. And there's a political blowback on that. Right. You know, that the, the liberals will start to feel that if they have if they're not feeling it already. I, I think the opposition is totally onto something here. Well, sure, and and, and yeah, they're grabbing it because you know we're feeling it, uh, and the yeah. dairy example is a classic one. I mean, you're absolutely right; they set the price, uh, and 
we, the, the public, are saying, please lower the price. And what's just two days ago, the dairy farmers went to the federal government and say, you've got to give us a price increase here because we're hurting here. So, right. you know, th there's a contradiction here right now that's going to have to be dealt with before we develop a, a solid policy on this because they're damned if they do and damned if they don't in that situation. Yeah, I mean, you, you could argue, too, that the, that the, the farmers themselves are paying, you know, through the nose for, for more expensive grain, which is linked to Russia. And so, you know, that's, that, that whole, um, it's complicated, right? And it's all interconnected. Yeah. And so that does give the, the federal liberals a, a platform to say, you know, we're just not, we're not going to do anything. It's just way too, like, I'm sorry, this, I'm sorry, this hurts, but that's the way it is. Um, but, you know, like, is that, uh, do we just leave the discussion there and go ahead and, and, and try to absorb these higher prices? I think we need to look at who is, you know, who's going to pay those higher prices. Is, is, is it fair? Is it equally distributed? Is it, once again, the low-income people, and I suspect it is, the low-income people that already took it on the chin in terms of losing jobs all over the place when we first shut down the economy for COVID, and then also being the essential workers on the front lines, dealing with people as they died from COVID, you know, in in, in, in old age homes and, and so forth, um, and then have had a hard time, um, you know, picking it up after after the the COVID recession is over. Is it going to be those same people that are paying through the nose for uh, for high inflation um, because you know because policymakers don't want to dive in there? You know, we've got to ask ourselves, I think, if if, if that's really the, the right answer at this point. Yeah, and I know, as you mentioned in the piece, uh, you know that they are—they are, you know, putting that out there again. Well, look what we did here. We got the child care program. We got this, mm -hmm. uh, but the answer to that is, yeah, I, thanks for that. We really appreciate it, but we're still in this mess, in spite right. of what you've done here. So let, let's let's talk about more things here. Do you get the sense sometimes, though, Heather, that that we know that the economists are also saying, as you mentioned, this is a supply issue. That some of those things are going to get worked out in the passage of time. But uh, is the government going to rag the puck here until that starts to happen? Uh, you know, in, until we start seeing those those channels open up again, because I, I don't see it on the horizon right now, because, uh, you know, you, you talk about some of the electronics, for instance, coming from China. Uh, they're not in any rush uh, to, to move back here and to bring some sense of equity to this. So it's going to require government action. We can't just hope it's going to correct itself, can we? Well, this is the thing. So, you know, I think traditional economic theory would suggest that, okay, you've got really high prices that's sending a, sending a, a, a message to companies that, okay, produce more, right? You guys can make a lot of money mm -hmm. here. So invest, you take your excess profits, invest them and just crank out whatever it is you're good at making, just do more of it. And then that would in, in itself solve the supply issues. But that doesn't seem to be happening, or at least not fast enough. So, you know, is there um, a drive within government to say, like, what? How can we? How can we leverage that? How can we really push more supply? And. Um, you know, I, I think there are some things that they could do. Um, I would hope that they're brainstorming pretty heavily about it. It's easier on the labor side. So if we have labor shortages, they can actually do quite a bit in terms of the movement of people, bringing in temporary foreign workers, which they're doing. Um, highly controversial, and we can get into that if you want, but it's pretty controversial. But also boosting immigration, and that's where the child care um, program comes in over time, but it's not immediate, right? So how do we how do we boost the, the, the supply of labor like right now? Um, so I think that's a question they're asking themselves but also you know how do you really push companies to don't take your profits and distribute them to shareholders and and uh you know just sit on your sit on your money invest it so that you can really like you know buy buy all the robots and computers and 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 people that you need to really boost the production right now and then take care of that supply problem there are incentives that the federal government could be uh could be probably twerking on this to to, to make them a little bit more active and i i would hope that they're looking closely at that 
We certainly hope so, too. Uh, always a pleasure, Heather. Thank you so much for the time today. Really appreciate it. My pleasure, too. Take care. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Right now, uh, let's get a little golf in. Uh, it's a big weekend here in Canada. The Canadian Open uh, is RBC Canadian Open, of course, is underway at uh, St. George's Golf Club, the storied old club, of course, in the west end of Toronto. But the story in golf is not that the Canadian Open is on, unfortunately. It's uh, it's about this other tournament that's going on over in the UK right now and a number of golfers who have, well, basically uh, uh, left the PGA Tour. Uh, and defected to this new league. And, uh, well, the PGA has responded to that. We're going to give you the details on that in a couple of seconds. One of the uh, the guilty party, though, is uh, Dustin Johnson, uh, who has resigned from the PGA uh, and uh, gone to the live golf series. Uh, and here's what he had to say about that. I resign my membership from the tour. I'm, I'm going to play here, um, you know, for now. And that's that's the plan. Um, you know, but what the consequences are going to be, I, obviously I can't comment on how the tour is going to handle well, we can. Uh, and to do that, we're so pleased to welcome back to the program uh, Greg Brady. Greg, of course, is the host of Toronto Today, which is heard 5.30 to 9 every weekday morning on our sister station, AM640 in Toronto. Greg, uh, this has become a soap opera and a, a kind of a melodrama here. Uh, and uh, the, I know you guys got an update this morning about what the PGA's tour is going to do. But it, well, I guess the thing that really bothers me about this is it's taking the shine off the Canadian Open. And that, that's really unfortunate. Well, I can imagine, Bill, the the organizers and the the tournament chair and the people from Golf Canada who've waited. I mean, it's one thing not to have the tournament in 2020. Um, You know, we're all out there playing golf in late 2020 and all through the spring of 21 once we reopen the outside again. And it's amazing that all of us schlubs can go out there and they, they can't figure out a way that the best golfers on the planet can't get into the country, play their tournament, even if it was without spectators so they've been through a lot um the tournament has to not have played since 2019 and and they were on some real momentum rory mcelroy won the tournament in hamilton i was out there for a couple of those days they've had great crowds i think they've marketed it really well they brought some big music artists in i know maroon five like there you've got like a super bowl halftime show performer on the saturday night at at royal st george's so it's um or at st george's i should say so yeah they didn't expect this and I, i i'm of two minds one it's not great, obviously, for the tournament to lose a star like Dustin Johnson or lose a couple other stars. They still have five of the top ten in the world there. But you're right. It's it's everybody on the course going there today and tomorrow is going to be, what about this Live Golf series? What And there's going to be gossip and discussion about it and opinion about it. And it does take away from the actual event itself. I don't know how anyone could argue otherwise. Well, especially, as we say, they, they teed off this morning to start the the Open. Uh, and that's when the PGA uh, decided to make their announcement. They, they basically have suspended all of these. I guess that the number's 19 right now. Uh, and said, you're, you're, you're not coming back. I mean, we're shutting the door behind you and we're throwing away the key. Uh, because some of these guys, in, in some of their comments, uh, basically said, yeah, we're going to do this. But we'll come back and play some of the other tournaments. And the, the PGA has simply said, no, you've made your choice. They're playing hardball with them. Is, is that the right move here? I think it is. I think you can't have your foot in both boats. I think an NHL player, um, you know, we're uh, we're of the vintage where we remember. I was a little, little kid, and Mark Napier was my favorite WHA player on the uh, Toronto yeah. Toros. Uh, so I remember the, the I remember the, watching WHA games on Global with Mike Anscombe, and I love that league, but I'm, I'm a little kindergartner and not quite aware of all the financial implications of that. Here's Bobby Hall who leaves – the Chicago Blackhawks to take all this money and play in Winnipeg. Why would you want to leave Chicago and go to Winnipeg? Who'd do that? 
and then Gordy Howe coming back to Houston at first and then New England to play with his sons. So you wouldn't have been able to play, oh, I'll play 40 games in the NHL and 40 games in the WHA. This is a big commitment. And it's there's a bunch of, I mean, everything is intersected here. Yes, sports has, I guess, but this goes, because we're talking about it too, is so beyond a sports story. There's um, there's economics, there's global influence, there's politics, there's um, there's oil, there's morals, there's ethics. I mean, in essence, what they promise these players is, more money, more guaranteed money um, for less time on tour. And if anything, if anything, I can defend the top golfers and the tennis players in the world, of, both men and women, they travel a lot. Like it's one thing for the Blue Jays or the Montreal Canadiens. You get a bunch, you, half the time you're in your own bed at night. Half the time you're at home. Half the time you're, you know, you're hanging out with your wife or girlfriend or you're driving your kids to school. I don't think golfers and tennis players have that. I, I, I They don't because they're constantly – on the go. So if this tour comes along and says you get more money, more time at home, like people are excoriating Justin Don, uh, Dustin Johnson. And I get why, Bill. I get a lot of the, the politics and, and the criticism of it. But they did say, he says, this is best for my family. And with young kids, he's right. It is best for his family. It's more secure money and it's more time at his nine bedroom, eight bathroom house or whatever. Like the, the, he did say something true yesterday amidst all this criticism. But you mentioned the politics, and 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 these guys don't want to make a big deal of that. But that is part of the big deal. I mean, you know, that, those comments Phil Mickelson made a few months ago uh, that he thought was mm -hmm. a, a, an off the record, but it was never nothing's ever off the record, I guess. Anyway, uh, he basically said, "Yeah, they, they, these are these are bad people. You know, they probably killed Khashoggi and they do some terrible things to their, their citizens. But boy, there's a lot of money on the table. That and that those are out of his." Mouth, those words out of his mouth. That he's basically saying, "Yeah, I don't really give a damn about that stuff because I just want more money for me." And and I don't know if that's the message you wanted to get across, but that's the way people have taken it. You, how can you separate that? You know, would you, you know, if Osama bin Laden was going to start a, a soccer league, would you go there? He's got a lot of money. You know, that some you have to draw the line sometime about ethics and everything else. And I, I don't know that these guys did that. And the best example of that was, you know, we were watching the memorial last week uh, down in Dublin, Ohio. Mm -hmm. And Bryson DeChambeau sat right there after the second round and said, no, I'm staying with the PGA. I'm, I'm, I'm committed to these guys. Well, 24 hours later, he, he bolts. Uh, you know, so it, money talks here, I guess. It's been an interesting year and a half. I mean, we haven't just dealt with the uh, the pandemic, but we've seen so many intersections of this. We just had an Olymp a Winter Olympics in Beijing, China. I've seen a lot of the videos, and so have you, over the last few months about what they've done to their citizens vis-a-vis -vis COVID uh, restrictions. Um, mm -hmm. They were doing things to the Uyghurs long before that. So there's China involved. Canada makes the World Cup. And amidst all the politics and the money and all those other issues this week with them um, striking during that game on Sunday, I know they're going to play tonight, but they're going to have to play this one. The, the, the game is in Qatar, which has terrible human rights records towards women, homosexuals, the people building the stadiums there that are only going to get used once. So sports and politics have interacted and intersected for some time. And I feel like there, there's a little bit of um, rich irony in some of the hypocrisy of this, but you're not wrong about this specifically. And you're right. There, there's clearly, there's, there's diehards digging in. Rory McIlroy was fantastic with his audio yesterday saying, yeah. sometimes when you make the best decision and it's only about money, doesn't work out for you the right way and that could be a free agent going somewhere or you know um you know even even in our careers you don't mess with happy a lot of these players were probably really happy on the pj tour 
and Bill, like this, I, I, I'm shocked. It's the, I think it's the most shocking sports story of the year, and I feel like we're constantly shocked by the news cycle and stories. What if this happens in tennis? What if someone says to the 32 best tennis players, less travel, play 20 weekends, uh, have more time at home, and you got more guaranteed money? Well, where's the money coming from? Saudi Arabia. Well, I mean, I do play in China. I, I you know, I, I'll go to the Olympics. Like we're we're constantly in a flux about about morals and ethics, and it is it's it's it feels way way more complex in the sports world than ever. It, and it is, and I understand that it's 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 not a black and white issue by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, but you know, the the counter argument to that is, look, guys, you knew what you were getting into. And by the way, you're compensated pretty well. I mean, Mickelson's big beef was he wanted more money in, in, the, in the pots. And what athlete doesn't? I mean, that's why they're professional athletes. And, and there's an argument to be made, by the way. I mean, you look at this list here of uh, Dustin Johnson, Mickelson, Sergio Garcia. Uh, who else is here? Martin Keimer, uh, Graham McDowell, uh, Lee Leswood, a lot. Ian Poulter. What's, aside from uh, Mickelson winning a couple of years ago, what, have these guys won anything in the last four or five years? I mean, maybe that's why they're complaining about money. Well, uh, you know, mm-hmm. are they going to be missed? I think uh, yesterday was uh, one of the golfers who was doing the practice round out at St. George's, and they said, I, I didn't notice anything different. In other words, these guys usually don't play past Friday anyway in most of these tournaments because they're just they're not playing their A game anymore. So, uh, you know, is, is the tour going to miss these mm-hmm. guys? Yeah, it's a great question, and, and for spectators. And I think – there's two intersects as well with, you know, to come, to come back even to the RBC Open, and I'll, I'll, I certainly want to address what you just said, is this tournament has been gone for three years. And since the pandemic, what's increased in terms of sport participation? Golf. Golf and tennis yep. are way up. And, go- and and there's more women playing. And there's more young people playing. And this whole, oh, it's an old, rich, white guy sport. Well, um, a set of irons is going to cost a couple hockey sticks. Uh, like, it, like, that hasn't gone up exponentially. But ask a parent what they pay tr- for travel baseball and that equipment and travel hockey. And you can go join a golf club and play 18 holes three times a week. And that parent for that teenager, you are saving money. You're saving money playing those so-called elite upper crust sports compared to how exponential a lot of sports have grown. So I feel bad about this because I think it casts the players in a bit of a greedy light. And I think a lot of people have come back to golf and Bill, you and I have talked after major weekends the last couple of years where we're like, well, there was no tiger woods and there was no drama and there's no stars and the ratings are down. And this isn't going to help. This isn't going to help to lose some of the stars you actually do have for people who tune in to see Bryson DeChambeau or Patrick Reed, or look at, look, look how much uh, Phil Mickelson's win at the PGA championship last year kind of gravitated people you were either rooting yep. for or more against him well you lose that x factor now what if tiger woods says i'm gonna join this tour in six months that's it like the pga i don't know that they fold up the tent but they are dreading that sentence that i just said from happening so i don't know where it all goes but i do know yeah to come back full circle it's a bit of a downer for the rbc open great event great people running it to have this controversy kind of uh, hanging over its head like a dark cloud when they haven't had a tournament in three years and, and I get this. I know we're just about out of time here. And you use the WHA, the World Hockey Association, and it's a good comparator. You know, they Bobby, they need credibility, so they got to get big names. So they got Bobby Hull, they got Gordie Howe, mm-hmm. uh, they got Derek Sanderson and Jerry Cheevers from the, the Bruins that just won the Stanley Cup. Both those guys bowled. But you notice, aside from Howe, they all went back to the NHL eventually. Uh, because it just wasn't working out. You know, PJs were missed, and they just, you know, the glitz was off it. Uh, and the PGA announcement today basically says, you're not coming back. 
uh, these are lifetime suspensions. It's, it's pretty harsh, but I think it sends a message, basically. In other words, we, we can't do much about these 19 guys, but everybody else is on notice that this is the price you pay if that's what you're going to do. So it, it's it's going to be fascinating to see how this world rolls out in the, in the weeks and months ahead. And, and Yeah, and, and we're way, rolling right into a major next weekend in the U.S. Open. And, yeah. um, you know, it's it, that the suspension doesn't factor in for the majors. But that's going to be really intriguing to see a couple live golfers paired with a couple or what, like two live golfers paired with a PGA golfer. There's going to be some tension in the locker room, no doubt. Now, does that increase ratings? Do people like a little bit of white hat, black hat? I think they do. I think you need that in sports. Uh, but I'm fa- yeah, it beyond fascinating because, look, you and I can't get enough of talking about it while still understanding there's some um, ethical, moral, financial, political, you know, uh, poop storms, we'll call it, still to come in the next few weeks over this. Well, I know you're going out to the tournament sometime this weekend, so enjoy your time there, and thanks so much for this, Greg. Really appreciate it. You you know what a Flo Rida fan I am, Bill, so right away. <laughs> yeah, I, I may even jump on and do some of the set with him. That's that's how I roll. Looking forward to it. Okay, thanks again. Greg Brady, of course, uh, host of Toronto Today on our sister station. Have a great weekend, Greg. Uh, and, and, and listen, I, I know, I know that it takes the shine away, and we just spent 20 minutes talking about the controversy as opposed to the golf tournament, and that's unfortunate, but it becomes the story uh, when things are happening like this. And I get the idea about money. I, you know, these, these guys are professional athletes. Uh, but like Rory McIlroy said, a lot of the time when you just make a decision based on money, it doesn't usually end well. Uh, and it's I don't know if that's going to happen with these guys or not. I mean, God knows there's a lot of money on the table for this. But the other element to this, too, is it may, in fact, start the PGA talking about maybe we have to do something else. Maybe we have to increase the prize money. Maybe we have to uh, give these guys some breaks. Uh, you know, the the, the work-life balance that, uh, that Greg was talking about there a minute ago. Uh, right now, they're angry at them, and, and I can understand that. And I guess the other guys are angry right back. So you're not going to get much in the way of discussion. But uh, you got to figure that, uh, that there's going to be some discussion behind closed doors over the next little while, like, hey, guys, how do we stop this 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 leaking that we're getting right now, some of the top names? Uh, and I, uh, without trying to be too cynical, I just mentioned them, aside from, you know, Mickelson winning uh, last year, I guess it was, uh, none of these guys have won tournaments for a long, long time. But what if a Scotty Scheffler and, and some of these other guys that are hot on the tour right now decide to take, to make a jump like that? The PGA has got to think about this. They can be angry and, and adamant in front of the microphones right now, but you got to know that they're concerned about this at the same time. Anyway, we'll see what happens, and uh, let's just worry about the golf tournament and enjoy the golf tournament this coming weekend, the Canadian Open going on. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.